All righty, we're going to start now. Lord be with you. Bless the Lord has caused all holy scriptures written for our learning. Grant we may sacrifice, hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. That by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which has given us our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Point to all our online friends, too. Ed, Elizabeth, Faye, Christine, Nancy, and Rhonda. <laughs> he was before Charlemagne. I think I'm thinking. I, 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 uh, huh? It's yeah, sorry. No, Chrysostom is is uh, is three hundreds to early four, very early four hundreds. So he's yeah, he's got a much later deal, much later deal. We're, we're in John 18. We're saying the passion narrative, which seems interesting because when I sent out the announcement, we're getting close to Lent. <laughs> it's like you had all these extra weeks ahead, and all of a sudden, like, how many weeks ahead? And we've got Lent coming there. Yeah. So. Um, we are collect, you know, we collect them. Usually we hand them in on, uh, yeah, I don't know when, I don't know when, yeah, I think we're going to send our notes to you bring them in. We've, we've, after years, we've, um, at least discovered how to do it functionally. It, it, it's easy, let's just burn the palms and use them, but it's easy to get unusable palm ashes. You have to burn them, then you have to run them through a, a sieve to grind it down. Otherwise, you'll, 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 you'll get something on Ash Wednesday that will stay may stay with you <laughs> and your clothes for a while. Oh, dear. So it's, all these things are great ideas. Yeah, let's burn the ashes, let's do that. But, you know, the nice little packet they give you when it's all set to go is so uh, it takes it takes somebody, you know, it's, it's a it's a little bit of a project. So I think we've, we've brought it into our wheelhouse. So. Um, we still we I we use we still use some of it. We just don't. Like, are you not sorry enough? <laughs> she liked. She didn't like the authentic ashes from our own palm branches. She liked the cotter provided or almi provided refined, you know, manufactured ashes. 
she likes her pen. Her pen is the, cut, the comfortable way. <laughs> Maybe we'll get you have some like matching colors. It made blacks too much. Maybe we could. Uh... All right. So we're in John 18, beginning the passion narrative, and um, John has a unique perspective on it, and it really the right way to look at when you read the passion narrative. The right way to look at it is is to um, focus on what each is saying, you know, the unique message, and um, I'm going to do something here because this glare on my table. I think you have a keyboard in your pen. No, it's going to change. I just think I just hook up a little bit of music if something picks it up. So last week I fought with this, and this week here, and I think it'll be gone by next week. So. Um, uh, and and so uh, John has his own unique perspective, and I, and I think the well, I think it's it's pretty obvious. The perspective of John is that. Um, Jesus is in control, and there's really a sense in John, you know, where Jesus, he's acting already as Lord in the midst of his sufferings. And there may be a larger reason for this uh, in the sense that if we believe that John's gospel is written late, um, a lot of people think John's is the last gospel written maybe in the 90s, um, but nobody really knows. But this is my opinion, so don't like say this, I said it was true, I just give my opinion. But the, the, the tradition of John also is that he wrote Revelation. And that revelation, um, I believe, deals at least on one significant level with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And so what I'm suggesting then is John's gospel may have been written with no more Jerusalem around. And and John's perspective may be informed by the fact that the... the, the um, what we would call um, John's inaugurated eschatology that's already sees Jesus as ruling, even though he's in the midst of, of this. Now, one thing to say about that is, is this is the um, characteristic perspective to which we are exhorted in the New Testament. The, when you read in Acts that um, you know they 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 departed from the council after having been beaten, some of the apostles rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer. Or when Saint Paul mentioned in our morning prayer lesson this morning, well, it's actually yesterday as we read it today. We skipped for Saint Paul on. Anyway, um, you know, uh, rejoice in the Lord. The rejoicing is because um, the conquest is already accomplished. We're in the midst of a struggle, 
but the victory is already won. So Jesus has no doubt he has to go through this pain of the passion, but he doesn't, but he's, he's going through it as the Lord who understands already the end result. And all he must do is to be faithful to fulfill his own vocation for that to come about. Um, it's kind of interesting, an analogy I've had, which may not resonate with any of you at all, but because um, I'm, I'm too much of a sports fan, but I, I watch a lot of recorded games, and occasionally I'll watch a game where I happen to catch the scores. And so I'll be watching the game, but I know we won. And it's kind of, and it's, and it's kind of funny because it, 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 this, is, this is a revelation about me, but I, I still get anxious. Like, like, make the shot, you know, and like, but I know we won. So, so in, in, a, in a sense, the, the, to, to have faith and, and, and to live in Christ is to have already won and to live through the middle of it with the confidence of the victory. It's a hard thing, though, because what happens is all of the trials make us doubt. Well, just, you know, that's, the, that's how it tests our faith. Can we hold on to that? So Jesus really epitomizes that in John's Gospel, this, this idea that, that um, he is in control and is very, is very much full of irony in, in that um, he is being judged next Yet, in a sense, he is also judging. Um, so let's jump in and read it. So when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, what would this garden be called? Gethsemane. Garden of Gethsemane. Now, John's gospel is unique. Well, it's different from the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in that in this time in Gethsemane, we're not going to hear of the, um, the, the agony. We call it the agony of the, in the garden. That's where Jesus, he bring, brings in, 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 like Matthew brings James and John, Peter, James, and John with them sit here while I go pray. And he prays, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. We're not going to get that here. Uh, we're going to get some allusions to it. But but this is the setting. And this is um, in Jerusalem. If you, Jerusalem's a city that's kind of on an elevated hill. And the Kidron Valley goes down from Jerusalem and it comes up, the Mount of Olives is on the hill opposite it. So it's looking across at the city. And it has olive trees still. So there's a garden where he is his disciples entered. One suspects because they just sort of went there that's not the first time they've been there. There might have been a common meeting place. It it makes sense. For example, um, told about Lazarus and Mary and Martha. There, Bethany would have been. He would have gone further away from Jerusalem, past the Mount of Olives. 
so it could be a convenient meeting place in proximity to Jerusalem that's not in the city itself on the outskirts. There was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who, and I, I suppose we should draw some of this garden imagery out because when he's buried and, and the resurrection takes place, we'll also encounter a garden tomb. Um, but we should be um, aware that the, you know, that the, that the fall, that the sin that enters into the human condition occurred in a garden too. And a lot of Jesus' significant actions to, to, to as the new Adam you know, the, the garden motif, I think, is significant. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And remember, our setting here now is we've had, um, in John 13 was our last past, our last chapter that included the what we would call the Last Supper. If you remember that John didn't have a Last Supper, what did he have instead in the Last Supper? Feet washing, yeah. John has the foot washing. He had the Last Supper. John has none of the, you know, he took bread and blessed it, took a cup. And I, I suggested something. Here's a little test for everybody. There's a suggested, you know, what might be a reason for that. Is there anything else in John's Gospel, any other passage that speaks of his body and his blood. The answer is yes. <laughs> Anyone know? Anyone know what chapter that is? Six? Yeah, John 6 is an extended discourse. Yeah, feel free to join in and let us know from online if you have an answer. Just unmute and then mute yourself. Um, but in John 6, Jesus, after he, the feeding of the 5,000, he went on a long discourse about the, I'm the bread of life. And, and so, again, John's gospel being late, the institution of the Eucharist being well practiced in the church, John gives more of a theological articulation of it in John 6. With the Last Supper, he deals with the foot washing, perhaps to remind the disciples that uh, of, of, the, of the command related to the foot washing, which is the new command to love one another as I have loved you. But you remember that Judas left that supper before, before um, all of that, and he was gone when he gave them the new commandment. So Judas hasn't been around for that foot washing, and he hasn't been around for any of the teaching that, that John, in, in, he, he, but he's, so when Jesus go, he'll be looking for Jesus because he's decided to betray him. He's outside the circle. He went out and it was night. Your 
yeah. thinking of it. Is that correct? I think that's right, Diane. I, I think um, even my, my Hebrew professor, I remember my favorite professor of all time, James Nancy, um, talked about the new covenant not being a brand new covenant, but even a renewed covenant. In other words, when, G when God says, I make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, it's not like I'm scrapping everything I did and I'm going to create a whole new thing, but I'm going to renew it. And the renewed covenant is, is how it becomes clearer in the light of Jesus, and then it becomes possible in the Spirit. And I think you're right about this. In other words, the other thing about, about yeah, the command to love us throughout the Old Testament, that Jesus clearly is giving us a new articulation of what that looks like. And then it's not like a, a, a thing to do, but a, but a perspective to, to live by, which because we always like things to do that can exhaust. Oh, I'm supposed to love you. What do you what, what want me to do? Okay, I did it. We done? <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> Not again. That's like the sort of, that, uh, uh, as Peter says to Jesus, you know, how, how often should my brother forgive me? I, I, you know, I've sinned and I forgive him. So that's, G Peter's getting at the same thing. It's like, I'll, I'll, go, you know, I'll go seven. <laughs> I won't exhaust this. And... So, so Judas, having received the detachment of troops, it says the detachment, the word troops actually isn't in the text. It seems to refer to a, a certain minority of a, of a, of a kind of a battalion or something, and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. So what seems to be is Judas is betraying him. He's, 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 and we've already known that the Jewish leadership wants to put Jesus to death. They're looking for an occasion to do it because he's such a troublemaker. He's getting the attention they're not getting. And so they're looking for an opportunity. So Judas has come to provide the opportunity. And the officers, there would be sort of temple police that were Jewish, but it also seems that attachment of troops would have to be Romans would be interested to make sure like, okay, we're not having an uprising here. So there's... and. One of the things that we should observe in John's Gospel is that this arrest and trial and crucifixion is a joint venture between the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities. My own opinion, again, I'll give I'll into my opinion, uh, in Revelation, when you get to the, what's called the, uh, well, often refers to whore of Babylon in Revelation 18, who sits on the back of the great beast, that this is an image of unfaithful Israel, former bride become unfaithful. And this theme comes throughout um, John's Gospel, that conspiracy, and then throughout Revelation too, that that it was usually in the in the early in the first century that Christians were persecuted because of, of uh, the opposition from the Jews who had decided not to believe in Jesus, and then their conspiracy with, with use of Roman power to, to get them to do what they couldn't do all by themselves, and so that that kind of compromised it. 
that, that, that characterizes the unfaithfulness of the woman in Romans 18. Revelation 18. Yeah, they couldn't just go kill Christians. They, they, Romans were in charge, so if they wanted to oh, really, yeah, if they wanted to have something done to the Christians, they needed the support of the powers that be or the cover of the powers that be. I, I, I misspoke about the book. It was it was Revelation, the book of Revelation that I'm referring to, chapter 18, that refers to the horror of Babylon, who I believe represents, in the first instance, God's unfaithful old covenant people in league with Rome, who is the beast. And I'm just pointing out here that here's here's our here's our beginning of that final alliance. The, Ro the Roman Empire, the ancient pagan Roman Empire, not the Roman Catholic Church. No, there's no Roman Catholic Church at this time. The, the, the Roman Catholic, the, uh, an, an entity known as the Roman Catholic Church won't really surface until the early Middle Ages. Roman Empire is Caesar, the very, the, the, so in the ancient world, um, the succession of empires, the Roman Empire before that was the Greek Empire, before that was the Persian, Medo-Persian Empire, and then the Babylonian Empire. So the Roman Empire that we're dealing with here, who Pontius Pilate will represent as the local governor, is the world empire. It's pagan. It, it's, it's, it's a sponsor of local idol worship in every city that's seen to support the um, it's, it's, it doesn't like it allows it as as in support of the overarching idea of Caesar being Lord and, and, and being given this kind of honor, which some which some Caesars emphasize more than others. What's the conflict? Um, there, yeah, so, so Angel asked, what was the conflict between the Jews and the Roman Empire? And the, the short answer to that is that there wasn't um, the tension between the, 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 the Judaism of the first century and the Roman Empire. Um, on one level, um, there wasn't a conflict in the sense that Jews had a special privilege in the Roman Empire. That's why I had local synagogues that were exempted from some of the the requirements of idol worship. But the real tension for Jerusalem Jews is they think that Israel should rule the world under the Messiah and should be independent, but they're now subject to the authority of the Romans, so they resent the Roman authority. But that's even complex because there are Jews who are less revolutionary, that is, they'd love to be in charge, but maybe, for example, the temple authorities probably existed in a, a much greater degree of comfort with the Roman authorities because they got you know, they got their privilege in the temple, things are going the way they wanted to go, 
then you have revolutionary elements who, who didn't want that. So, I mean, Judaism is not monolithic in the New Testament, you, or, or the Israel is not. You've got a number of different groups, just like America or just like Christians. What's the church doing? Well, where, what part, and what's what's the answer? So, but but the overarching animosity would have been resentment that the God's chosen people were under pagan authority. That would have been the main source of conflict. If I understand correctly, so they have two sides. Judaism have conflict with Israelite under the Roman Empire. There's no distinction between Israelites and Judaism. All of Israel is is first century Judaism. They're all practicing the religion of the Old Covenant. In various ways. But Judaism is Israelites. That's how are Israelites. Judaism is the religion of the Israelites. So, so it's the same thing. Yeah. So Israelites practice. So Judaism is is the religious title given to the tradition of following the Torah that's come down. So that's that's Judaism. And that's when John says the Jews, he's talking about the Jewish leadership, the religious heads of Judaism who represent Israel religiously. And the Romans were invaders. Well, the Romans were invaders, but we have to understand that Israel, well, I mean, we, I don't want to divide, you know, divide to, to digress too much into a history lesson, but Israel had, you know, was only independent in its, you know, the, the, they lost their independence over 500 years before these events, when the Babylonians destroyed the first temple. Um, they briefly won their independence back. Uh, in the Maccabean revolt about 175 BC, that was short-lived. So the Jews had lived under pagan authority for five centuries, pretty much. So it's not like Rome, Rome just conquered the Greeks to take over this area. They didn't. They didn't themselves invade. They just took over the empire. Okay. So. Um, Officers from the chief priests and Roman officers. Verse 4, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? So this is the first instance of Jesus being in charge. Um, they're coming for him. He's not running behind the tree, hiding the olive grove. He sees them coming. Who, who do you want? Um, then he answered... Then they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus said to them, most translations will say, I am he, but he is supplied. The Greek just says, I am. And clearly, because John's gospel is, is, is full, is, well, one aspect of John's gospel is the seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Um, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. And then in that passage, um, when he had the, the, the a conflict with the Jewish leadership in, I, I want to say it's John 8, but I could be off by a chapter, uh, 
when they said, oh, you're, you're not 50 years old, you've seen Abraham, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, that relates to Exodus chapter 3, because when Moses, when God met Moses the burning bush and, and said, uh, you know, go save my people, Moses asked God, who shall I say is sending me? Give, give me a name. And God says, I am that I am. There's a lot of nuances in translation, but essentially the idea of I am. And that's the root of the, of the um, name for God in the Old Testament, which is sometimes traditionally or in older times pronounced Jehovah, but usually now more recent scholars pronounce it Yahweh. Those are the Hebrew consonants for, you know, I am that I am, what's mentioned in Exodus 3.14. So when you read your Bible in the Old Testament and you come across the, the word Lord in small caps, that is the name from Exodus chapter 3, transliterated into English with that word Lord, um, because the Jewish people developed a tradition of, of after the Old Testament of not mentioning the name of God. So whenever they came to the scriptures and had this name Yahweh, they never say it. They just say, Lord, Adonai, Lord. So the English convention picked that up. It's our Bible saying, Lord. So when Jesus is saying, to cut to the chase, I am he, and he says, they drew back and fell to the ground. Clearly John is telling us he spoke the name of God, identified him as such, and they drew back. And so, who, so that's the idea. So who's in charge here? They come to get him. He meets them, speaks the divine name, and they kind of draw away a little bit. So it may be to to um, it may be to um, it is perhaps we get some hint of a revelation of the of the divine power here that they sensed in the speaking of the name. It's a momentary glimpse because it doesn't keep them from. <laughs> doing the rest of what they do. Verse 7, then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I, I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Um, this is part of the teaching in a previous chapter where Jesus said um, that, that, that those the Father gives me, I should lose none, but raise it up at the last day. So the sending of disciples away is another act of protection by the good shepherd. I'm here. I'm ready, I'm ready to do what I need to do. Let these go so they can be, they can be safe and protected. And it's, it's also because they, they literally can't do anything. It's not a fight. They can't die for the sins of the world. They're not going to be courageous enough to help him. And this is part of the vicarious atonement of our Lord, that he has to do it all by himself. But saying the way, it's like, don't let them get caught up in something or arrested. Or, or they'll, they'll have their own chance to be martyrs, but they, they need to have more understanding of the gift of the Spirit before they're ready.
So, um, but let these go their way. Verse 10, then. Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, um, a few things going on here. So, Peter, what, what's going on here? Um, incidentally, only John mentions this, Luke mentions it. Luke mentions that Jesus heals his ear. John doesn't mention that. Um, but what is Peter thinking? And I, I actually think that um, we, we, there's going to be a lot of critique of Peter in this, in this, uh, in his denial in the courtyard of the high priest. But and we could say, well, Peter was sort of, you could say Peter was cowardly, but I don't really think that's true. I actually think if Jesus had just been an ordinary revolutionary, I think all these guys would have taken swords and gone down fighting. I think the disconcerting thing for, for Peter was this new kind of fight. Yeah, I can fight, let's go. And there's clearly a reactive, anxious part of it too, but but I don't so I don't think Peter was afraid to go here, shall we say, and even be killed by the soldiers. Of course, he would have expected Jesus to do something to make it work. I, I think the it, it's the same thing that happens in the Christian life when we feel pressured into is that like we want to fight people head on, but often the battle is ordinary faithfulness, obedience in the face of all kinds of attack, where we're not called to really do anything, and that's all disconcerting. How do you? Like we're just going to let this happen. That's what Jesus. That's what Peter's like. You're just going to let this. We're just going to supposed to. We're just supposed to trust that God is in control here and just let these guys take our Lord. Like try to do it in our. Well, but I mean, I think Peter. Yeah, that's right. I mean, what Peter's saying is he doesn't. He. I don't think he understands a battle in which the courageous thing is to do nothing except be obedient and faithful. And I don't think we really understand either. That's our problem. As we want to go, okay, who can I hit? Who can I yell at? Who can I you know, just do stay in your prayers? You, If you're called to say something, truth in love, not reactively, not anxiously, not jumping up and cutting someone's ear off, but you may be called stand up, but, but it's obedience and faithfulness, not, not a fight not a secular fight in the world that we're supposed to win by brute force. And that's the disconcerting I think, for Peter. I think Peter was actually capable of great braveness, great bravery, like a lot of, like, but, it, but again, this, the fight that comes from spiritual attack and the call to be faithful against opposition in which you don't strike back, that's a different kind of battle that most of us aren't, aren't real comfortable with. Get used to it. it doesn't, the call to do it doesn't go away. So, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Now, um, this idea of the cup 
That's something that is in the other temptation narratives in the other Gospels. Father, if it be possible, Jesus prays, let this cup pass from me. And this cup theology is present in the Psalms. It actually, um, the cup um, has a couple of different horizons of meaning. But um, one of the one of the cup meanings is the cup of judgment. Um, had a little piece of paper wrote down. I think it's Psalm seventy five. Is if I can find it. Yeah. Okay. So, but God is the judge. He puts one down and exalts another. Psalm seventy five, verse seven, and following. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. Cup of judgment. Yeah, that's right. Cup of wrath. So, judgment, wrath, wrath, understand that wrath is the same thing. The wrath of God, we we will misunderstand if it, if it mean like God have a temper tantrum. It's the righteous anger of God, response of God to the wrong done. So when God, we're told in the New Testament, judgment comes on Jerusalem for their rejection of the Son of God. That is a righteous act. Because something so wrong requires a recompense. The point here is the other uh, cup is, of course, um, um, the cup of, of um, I will, re- yeah, I will receive the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. So these come together here because Jesus is taking upon himself the sins of the world. And so the cup he is drinking is, on one level, a cup of judgment. He's taking upon himself the dregs of the cup that's supposed to go all on the heathen, who hate God. Instead, the obedient and faithful son of God is is going to drink that cup. And in that, um, this is Isaiah 53. Um, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He takes upon himself in his suffering our judgment and therefore is able to offer to us on our behalf salvation. And it's not just... We don't want to just have a strictly judicial imagery here because it's also related to the way that Adam sins and we all in Adam, we, we all sin in Adam. And so we inherit this reality. We, we, this is the reality of our condition because of our genetic connection to Adam. Now, Jesus will take upon himself our judgment as the righteous one and rise and then through the gift of the spirit 
we are born again in the image of the new man, and then we take on his righteousness. It's his righteousness both as as the um, ju- God's judgment on us as being his children, and also his righteousness in, in this is how we're supposed to live now, that you love one another as I have loved you. This, this is the way of life that pertains to those who are connected to the new man. But here, the drinking of the cup is the drinking of the cup of judgment on our behalf. And that's, that's where this, this, this um, verse 11 highlights. Verse 12, then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. And this is a little a little hard to follow, but it, it seems as though Caiaphas is the high priest, but Annas was father-in-law and may have been previously high priest, so there's this deference to him, that because he still has a kind of standing and authority. Now, it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, this is a quote from a previous, and I had a little piece of paper, but it is, is a quote from, I think, chapter 12 of John. And what Caiaphas meant when he said it was, we need to kill this guy because if we don't get him out of the way, he's going to rile up the crowds and the Romans are going to... That was his idea. The Romans are going to are going to put down the rebellion and we're all going to suffer. Better to kill the one guy than all. He didn't understand the horizon of being, but but the but the Christian John and the other disciples did get the irony that John that Jesus he's going to die for the people. He's going to drink the cup of wrath. It's not happening like therefore like the Jewish leadership thinks that by getting rid of the troublemaker they'll save themselves from a Roman response, but rather that by them, by, by, by Jesus dying for them, they'll be able to be forgiven. We also want to see the, the um, liturgical framework of this, that this is the high priest who, whose job it is to offer the sacrifice is going to offer the Son of God up. Wow. Verse 15. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Everyone thinks the another disciple is John, because John always calls himself by cryptic names like the Beloved or the other disciple. And if it wasn't that, why wouldn't he just give his name? Clearly, he's not hiding Peter's name, so there's no reason. Um, it would also make sense because John, which, how, how John knew some of the things that went on behind the writing of his gospel, behind the scenes. He knew some people in the high priest. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her, kept the door, and brought Peter in. This kind of, it kind of makes me laugh right here, because the servant girl didn't say to John, you're a disciple. Like, some guys always, it always happens to them. It's like, Peter's the guy it happens to. 
John's just freely roaming around, but Peter, but it, it may also be that Peter was notable because he had um, cut the ear. So he's kind of notorious. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? That I'm not. This is the change setting when Peter is making grave pronouncements of his desire to die, just like we make grave <clears throat> pronouncements of <clears throat> all the great things we're going to do until we get in the tension moment and we capitulate. It's, it's the reactivity of the moment, the tension, the anxiety of the moment that, that um, pulls Peter out of his, of his resolve. Now the servants and officers who had made a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Now we need to make a mental note of this fire of coals, because it's going to connect with the resurrection narrative. Because Jesus is going to appear on the, on the Sea of Galilee, and they're going to be fishing, and he's going to be by a fire of coals cooking. And so when, when, when we get the Peter's reconciliation in the resurrection, there, that's another ironic stage prop, that, that Peter denies Jesus by the fire of coals in the high priest's garden, and in the resurrection, when Jesus is going to say to Peter, do you love me? Jesus stands by fire of coals, and all these props are there to call to mind you know, what Peter, you know, the, the reality of what Peter has done. And that's, this is the only two places in, in the New Testament where there is a fire of coals. Peter warms himself, took warmth with all the uh, opponents. High priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. And Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. There's two things here to note. Um, this is basically true. Jesus didn't, you know, he taught, teach people. He wasn't handing out secret notes. He already said, I am. The, 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 re, the reality here, this is, is that they've arrested him in secret because they knew they couldn't do it in public. They're trying to find some reason to kill him. It's not really a trial. They're not really looking for evidence. They've already decided. They're trying to find, you know, like when you talk to someone who doesn't like you, and no matter what you say, they'll they'll say, oh, you know, it's like they'll, they'll, they'll find a way to, that just means this. Oh, yeah, you just mean. So there's no, when they say what, that's why Jesus, he said, I've, I've, I've been open about what I, I, I believe and what I teach. So ask people who listen to me. The other thing is that we get um, Peter's first denial juxtaposed with Jesus' faithfulness, standing firm under interrogation. And, and you get that, that contrast of, of Peter representing us, the old man, and Jesus, the new man, who, who is, is standing firm. Verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with a palm of his hand. Do you answer the high priest like that? 
And of course, we get to Hebrews, we understand that Jesus is our great high priest. You have the Son of God, the great high priest, being struck by a servant of the high priest. The temporary pretend high priest is also from Ireland, he's working there. Um, but interestingly here, it's, and this, this is, um, it's all about authority and respect, not about truth here. What's, what's, what's actually true is not an issue. And, and so they're, they're just, the hitting of Jesus is a perceived lack of respect, but there's no real reason to hit him. It's it because there's no charge. Jesus answered him with a seeming call. And again, this is a um, something we have a really hard time doing when we feel, when, when, when we stood up for Jesus and got hit in the face, to stay calm and say, you know, if I've done, spoken evil, bear witness of the evil, but if I've spoken well, why are you hitting me? Why are you striking me? So they don't have anything. And that's the, um, that, that's the key thing here, is this is a trial scene. Jesus is the accused, and th there's no evidence to convict him. Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the high priests, a relative of him, whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again and immediately a rooster crowed. So the innocent one bearing our sins, juxtaposed with Peter, who really is emblematic of all of us, not standing faithfully for Jesus under trial. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium, and it was early in the morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled. This is the palace. That they might eat the Passover. Because if they'd gone into a Gentile's house, they would be ritually unclean. They couldn't eat the Passover. So the tremendous irony here is, um, you know, they're, they're concerned about this ritual outward purity while they have, they're, they're, they're plotting to murder someone. This is something Jesus brought out in the debate with him. Why are you seeking to kill me? You, you know, so, and this gets a little bit of what um, some things Jesus touches on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, You've heard that it said, don't kill. I say, who's angry with his brother? Clearly, anger, malice, which is the inner sin, but is covered up by an outward display of righteousness. The other funny thing I've ever, Rebbe Shkin went to a sermon in meditation on this course. So you see Pilate, the, the Roman ruler's in there, you know, and says that, you know, the Jews want to see, okay, bring them in. Uh, no, they can't come in because they'll be unclean. You got to go see them. <laughs> or think like, oh, it'll be a little, a little annoying. 
And that's really kind of what it is. And this is the, 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 the complicity of Pilate as a ruler is that he is concerned mostly to keep the peace. Because if he has the insurrection, he's done. They're going to send someone from Rome to replace him. So the compromise of what do we need not to have, it's not a matter of right and wrong for him, as it is not for most politicians. It's, it's even in our, in our time, for example, it's different, but in our time it's like, what do I need to do to maintain my constituency, even if I, say, I have to say something I don't really think is right? So, Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, if we were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. <laughs> it obfuscates the fact that they don't have an accusation. It reminds us also, this is a, 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 a connection between Paul and Acts, when the, when, when the leadership arrests him and wants to send him to Rome, and, and the local leader there was the Agrippa. Okay, what's the charge? And then they do a charge. Israel had a charge. <laughs> so this is the idea of those who follow Jesus maintaining blamelessness and innocence so that we're justified and no one has a charge against us. That's the proper status. Verse 31, the Pilate said, Then you take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Huh? Well, and this kind of seems like it's a half truth because we do get an act that they stone Stephen. But I think what they want here, though, they, they want the dirty work done because while they probably could, it would have such an uprising of people against them. So they want this done, but they want official sanction. And, and so they're, they're, first of all, having someone else do their dirty work, and then they're going to try to change the idea of the crowd, which is probably at this point more pro-Jesus, until they, they see that he disappoints them also. So the real meditation on, on the passion in John's gospel is the different aspects of how human nature is portrayed in its different forms here. Religious leadership concerned about its own religious authority, and afraid of, of, of the prophet, and therefore with no charge hand him over. The Roman governor just wants to keep the peace. The crowd who wants a popular savior who gets upset when he doesn't give them what they want. He doesn't. So this skewers us at all, at, at every level of the story. Or who, I should say, wherever we find ourselves in the story. So, Therefore, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death, verse 32, but saying that Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying by what death he would die. Because if the Jews killed him, they'd stone him. But since the Romans are killing him, they're going to crucify him. Crucifixion is a Roman form of death, of capital punishment. Then Pilate, verse 33, entered the Praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? 
So Pilate now also both want some way to find some justification to do something. And Jesus didn't give it to the, the, the Jewish authorities. He's not going to give it to Pilate. You know, How'd you find that out? Not saying anything. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have, what have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore just said to them, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am the king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth hears my voice. This is the injection of Jesus into this whole scene, because so far I haven't had any truth. We've had um, an authority that's jealous and wants to maintain his power, that's not concerned about truth. Um, and now we've got a Roman ruler is concerned about peace, but not truth. And in those places, truth gives way to expedience. And that's why Pilate says in the famous line, a lot of meditations written on Pilate said, that what is truth? Because in a, in a purely earthly political calculation, truth never matters. What matters is power. Once you have power, then you can start deciding what's true. And so Jesus stands for the truth, and that's our vocation, to stand for what is true and right, even though we're opposed at every side by that. That's how we maintain our innocence in truth before the Father who will vindicate us. And we want to be careful not to fall into the temptation to bend the truth in order to avoid some personal problem. Because here, Jesus could, especially with um, the Jewish leadership, just want to get rid of him with Pilate, he probably could. Hey, let's, let's, let's cut the end. I don't think I really want to get crucified today. He could try to. The other thing that we should understand about Jesus here in not defending himself is that um, it's it's Isaiah 53. As, as a lamb before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Matthew's gospel picks this up most profoundly because when we read on Palm Sunday Matthew's passion Jesus literally only says two words at the first year we did this sort of responsive reading I was the, the Jesus part I'm looking I don't have anything to say <laughs> but here he doesn't say much he, there's here he does not offer a defense he's just the innocent one he's going to allow himself to be um, taken And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to him, I find no fault in him. I find him innocent. 
the Jews should have a charge, they have a charge again. The innocence of Jesus is maintained throughout. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried out, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Now, the, the, the back story for this is likely that religious authorities now working the crowd. Jesus was very popular, and they probably thought he was going to do something, and now they're saying, look at this guy you follow. He's just said he's going to do something for you. He didn't do anything, see? So they, 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 they manipulated the turn of the crowd. And then the, the presenting irony of this is, um, what, what does uh, bar Abbas mean in, in probably Aramaic? So, yeah, like we have a bar mitzvah, son of the law, bar Abbas, the son of the father, Abba, father. So they, they, there's a, a arrested criminal who's a robber, who's a, um, I think this is more of like the revolutionary dagger men, uh, robber, not like he stole some fruit kind of robbers, but a, a, a violent revolutionary um, who uh, is named Barabbas. And so the custom is that every year to give the Jewish people something to, to show his magnanimity, he'd release a prisoner. Usually it would be some popular revolutionary figure. Probably it's okay, we, you, you, you let him go, but now it's, they ask for Barabbas. So the the guy named Son of the Father is asked for in the place of the true Son of the Father. And there we are for the first part of our passion narrative. So we'll pick up next week with, with chapter 19. Let us pray. Lord, bless us and keep us. Lord, make his face to shine upon us, be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us, give us peace this day and forevermore. Thank you, Thank you, Bishop. Thank you all. To see you, Christine, Connie, Ed. Thank you. Ben. Thank you. So amazing. Thank and you. Uh, Rhonda, who was a scene there. I'm here. <laughs> Well, right, the, the, the point, right, is violent revolution. Yeah. And, 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 yeah. and the interesting thing is that 
that's also the image of, of, of grace that he dies and like those of the of us, Peter, who, who capitulates, and then this guy walks free, and he has a skill that that guy about like? <laughs> I'm going? Yeah. I guess it was Somebody left fresh oranges, so you should all taste them and think it's from their garden. Oh my gosh. Apply it to so many areas in our life. You know? Yeah. That's absolutely right. How we are, all these different things. 